Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Romans chapter 11. We have come now to the 33rd verse of the 11th chapter in our verse-by-verse, phrase-by-phrase exposition of this letter. This is a very significant passage of Scripture. It sets in a very unique place and serves a very unique purpose in the letter at large because what Paul has been doing now for 11 chapters is he has been unveiling, teaching, extolling the truth about the sovereignty, the mighty work and ways of God with men. It has been 11 chapters that have been so tightly packed with doctrinal truth, with theological truth that it's been at times overwhelming and weighty to try to wade through all of the depths of that theology. But what he is doing and what I'm sure that many of you have been longing for for a few years now is that we're coming to the 12th chapter of Romans. Hallelujah. Praise God. The first 11 chapters are saturated with the depths of doctrinal theology about God. And then chapter 12, the... Dark clouds and deep ways of theology give way to the sunlight of practical application of truth to day to day life. And what happens between those 11 chapters of theology and then chapters 12 through 16 of practice is a four verse doxology. Romans 11 33 to 36. We're starting in that today. You say, what is a doxology? It is Paul's eruption of praise based upon the 11 chapters of the truth, the weighty, majestic, grandeur, and at times fearful truth about God that he has been revealing for the last 11 chapters that we've been looking at now for five years. And he comes to the end of the 11th chapter and he erupts in this anthem of praise for who God is and his ways. Let me read those four verses for you and we'll try to get through a verse today. Romans chapter 11, beginning of verse 33. Paul writes, 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. What those verses are is that they're a response. They're they're Paul's eruption of praise. It's like an artesian well in Paul, in his mind, in his heart. What Paul has been doing is he has been particularly for the last three chapters, which form a unit in the letter, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul has been looking down into kind of standing, hanging 10 over the crevasse of the sovereignty of God in relationship to His ways of salvation with mankind. And he has been with his keen mind and almost unmatched logical development of truth, he has been looking down into that crevasse of the greatness and the grandeur of the glory of God. And he has been talking to us about the magnitude of the mercies of God. And he's been talking to us about the the severity or the great awfulness of the justice of God. Both of those are a part of God's sovereignty. And what he does here in these last four verses as he is winding up all of this incredibly packed theological truth is that he comes to the conclusion and he looks into this crevasse of the sovereignty of God and he crafts this capstone statement. And what it becomes is an anthem of praise and our artesian well of praise that he looks at the truth of those 11 chapters and he has his heart, I believe, well up within him and his lips that refuse to be stopped and he cries out, Oh, the depth! Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How inscrutable are God's ways. He stands there in awe and he marvels over the truth of God's sovereign dealings with mankind in salvation. And the only way he can respond is to shout out in shock and awe and wonder, oh, the depths of the riches of God. You see, folks, 
What we need, what I need, is we need to see God as He is. In increasing measure, we need the clearest picture of God. We need to see the greatness, the grandeur of His glory, the magnitude of His mercy, the awfulness of His justice. We need to be able to peer into His sovereignty and shout with Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are the judgments of God. How unscrutable are the ways of God with men. You see the emphasis here The emphasis here is with the depth. It is the deepness of the depth of God's riches and wisdom and mercy, the unsearchable nature of His judgments, their depth, the inscrutable nature of God's ways, the depth of his ways. It's shocking, Paul says, as he cries out in praise. You see, it's not that Paul sees to the bottom of the depths, even with his incredible mind and his incredible revelation from God. He doesn't see to the depths of that crevasse. In fact, he says, no one sees to the depths. I would even take it a step further. He says, they are unsearchable depths. They are inscrutable, meaning there's no bottom to them. There's no limit to them. They're limitless. They are boundless. They are without end. They are defying measure. They are humbling any attempt at description. And so what I am attempting to do this morning is the impossible. It is to describe to you the indescribable reality of the nature of the depth of the sovereignty of God in His mercy and in His judgment. And so I think the first place to start and the safe place to stay will give some description, but it is to stay on, a, on an anthem of praise and wonder over the majesty of who God is. Oh, the depths of God in His glory. Amen? Amen. Depth of his riches. General statements. Depth of his wisdom. Depth of his knowledge. But what I want to do this morning is I want to zero in on the last part of verse 33. I'll try to get to both sides of the statement. I may only get to one, but here is the statement. How unsearchable are God's judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Yeah. 
Let's talk first about the unsearchable judgments of God. What is Paul referring to here when he mentions, when he considers, as he looks into God's dealings with man? Remember, he's just given us three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, where he has painted the scene of all human history and how God works in his saving purposes with the Jews and all the other nations of the world related to salvation from time past, in the present in Paul's day, in the present in this day, and all the way to the consummation of history. That's what he's been talking about. And then he comes to verse 33 and he exclaims that the judgments of God are unsearchable. What does he mean by that? You see, I think we will get a clear understanding if we look closely at the context from which this text comes, specifically the pretext, meaning what has Paul been saying in the first 11 chapters about the judgments of God? And how does what Paul has been saying in those 11 chapters about the judgments of God show that they are unsearchable judgments? So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to try to ask and answer this question. What specifically are the judgments of God that Paul has been writing about in Romans, the first 11 chapters, and how does that show them to be unsearchable? And so I'm going to give that to you under a main heading. Let me state it, and then I'll spend the rest of my time expounding upon the truth of the statement. Here's the statement. God's unsearchable judgments are seen in the salvation that He has provided. God's unsearchable judgments are seen in the salvation that He has provided. That's what Paul has been writing about in the first 11 chapters. Specifically, what are God's unsearchable judgments? Here's the first point under the heading. Now, this is going to be fairly long and deep, but try to follow it in your mind and then we'll fill it in. Here it is. God, the perfect Father giving His perfect, holy Son to be brutally sacrificed so that rebellious sinners could receive His perfect righteousness. We say that again. God, the perfect Father, giving His perfect, holy Son to be brutally sacrificed so that we rebellious sinners could receive God's perfect 
divine righteousness. It's that that shows us that the judgments of God are truly unsearchable. Let me explain that. You see, the judgments of God are always based upon and flow out of His righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that dictates and determines what the judgments of God are. And so Paul makes this statement about the unsearchable judgments of God. So what we have to do to explore those is to understand that what's behind the judgments of God are, is the righteousness of God. And in fact, ladies and gentlemen, let's get the context now of the first 11 chapters of Romans. What you could do to adequately describe the book of Romans is you could say this, that the entire book, the entire letter is really a letter about the righteousness of God. Many have described it by that description, that it is about the righteousness of God. Let me be more specific that what we have in Romans is that the righteousness of God is what makes our salvation possible. Just let that simmer for a moment. It is the righteousness of God that makes our salvation possible. So let me explain that in the letter now. Paul opens up in the first chapter of Romans with a thesis statement in the middle of the chapter in verses 16 and 17. Here's what I mean. You've written some thesis papers for school, high school, junior high, college. Paul gives a thesis statement in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that he is going to spend the rest of the letter expounding upon the truth of that statement. And so here's what he says in verse 16 of chapter 1. He writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. Here's why. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul begins his thesis statement saying this, I've got some good news for you. I'm going to write to you about some good news. And here is what the good news is about. It's about salvation. The good news is about salvation. Folks, there's no greater news than that. There's no more influential news in your life than what determines your eternal destiny. It determines what your life is like in the now, and it determines what your eternal existence will be like forever. There is no greater subject for you to understand and get settled in your mind than what God has said regarding salvation. And so what Paul is doing here in the opening of his thesis statement is says, I've got some good news for you, and that good news is about the greatest thing that I can tell you about, it's about the salvation that God has provided. Then verse 17 comes the heart of the thesis statement. Paul goes on and he writes, For in it, 
meaning, for in this good news, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul here said, I've got some good news for you. And the good news is all about salvation. And then here is the essence of salvation. Here's the basis of salvation. It's related to somehow the righteousness of God. You see what he says there in verse 17? That the good news is about the righteousness of God that is through faith. You see, when Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, when he looks back and he makes this summary statement of the teaching that he's been given, and he says, how unsearchable are the judgments of God. Judgment is related to righteousness. And he has been writing about God's righteousness for 11 chapters. And God's righteousness is related to our salvation. Verse 21 and 22 of chapter 3. You see, what Paul does at the end of his thesis statement, in verse 18 of chapter 1, is he begins to paint the problem. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, he starts talking about the wrath of God being over humanity. And what he does for two chapters, middle of chapter 1 up through the middle of chapter 3, is he starts throwing out this net of the wrath of God over different people groups. And by the time he gets to the middle of the third chapter, he has thrown the net of the wrath of God over every single human being of history and said, All of them are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God's holiness. There is no one good, no, not one, he writes in the third chapter. Then he comes to the pivotal moment in chapter 3 And he begins to talk about the salvation of God in verses 21 and 22. Listen, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been made known. Remember, the righteousness of God is what enables our salvation. The greatest news. And so he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Right here is the key of salvation. The means that God uses to provide a salvation for us is this means. He's made a way for us to actually receive the very divine righteousness of God. The exalted perfections of the very righteousness of God Himself. Not to spruce ourselves up and 
paint over our mistakes and make it look good on the outside. No, what Paul says here is you can actually receive God's perfect divine righteousness. And how do you receive that? You receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. How do you escape from the wrath of God? Genesis 1.18 up to Genesis, or Romans 1.18 up to Romans 3.20. How do you escape the justice of God's judgments? The only way is you have to be found possessing the very righteousness of God Himself. And the only way that you can possess the perfect righteousness of God Himself is that you have to receive it by your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 of chapter 3, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do to provide redemption? That means to buy us back. That means to pay the price so that we can receive the righteousness of God. What did Jesus do? Well, the very next verse in 325 tells us that here is what he did. He did it by his blood, referring to his sacrifice on the cross. Now get ready for this. What Paul says in Romans 3.25 is that God the Father is the one that presented Jesus the Son to be the sacrifice. Sift that around for a moment. Not the Roman soldiers that took and forced him, not the Jews who were jealous that cried out for his crucifixion. Yes, that happened. But really, what was behind it all was the perfect Holy Father of heaven determining, I'm going to sacrifice my perfect son, Jesus, on the cross. I'm going to present my perfect son as the sacrifice. Folks, that is the unsearchable judgments of God. Would you have figured that out? Would I have figured that out? Could I have ever dreamt up such a means of salvation? The co-equal, co-eternal, second member of the Trinity, He that has existed with God and who is God, fully equal with the Father throughout an endless eternity past that perfect Holy One, Jesus, who created all things, that all the created universe came through His power. It was all created for Him. It was all created to bring Him glory. All of that is true, and that's the one that was nailed to a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem by the design and planning and working out of the perfect Father of heaven. That's the unsearchable judgments of God. Who could have 
figured that out, who could have searched that out and said, here's the way salvation needs to happen. None of us would have dared even think of such a thing. Been blasphemy even to consider it. But it's what God said is the plan of his judgment. It was to kill his perfect son. How unsearchable are the judgments of God. You see, his perfect holy son came and lived a perfect holy life in the flesh without sin perfectly fulfilling the law. He lived with a God righteousness here on earth in human flesh so that by going to the cross and actually taking our sin, becoming the curse for us, what happened is that when we trust in Him, we actually get the righteousness of God. I don't mean theoretically. I mean what happens is Jesus on the cross owned your sins, every single one of them. And he took them on as if he had committed them. And the Father, looking at Jesus on the cross, saw him as guilty for every one of your sins and mine. And then he poured out his wrath against sin, punishing all of those sins to the full extent in His Son so that when you trust in Jesus, here's what happens. The perfect righteousness of God Himself, Jesus, becomes yours. So that when God sees you, He doesn't see you with the spruced up human righteousness. What Paul was talking about in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now a righteousness from God has been made known, and that is this. Jesus gives us Divine righteousness, meaning if you have put your faith in Jesus, God could never more judge you again for sin than he could crucify his own son again for sin. Impossible for that to happen because you are possessing the very righteousness of God. You see, that's the unsearchable judgments of God that Paul has been writing about in Romans. So that in Romans eleven thirty three, 33, when he comes to this statement, oh, and looks down into the crevasse of the ways of God with man, he says, oh, how unsearchable are the judgments of God. Why? Because no man can plumb the depth of that truth. No man I don't mean you can't hear and understand what I just said. I mean you cannot fully understand it. You cannot search it all out. It outstrips your mind and your intellectual capacity and your finite parameters. It is a boundless, limitless, undescribable truth about the mercy of God in His judgment giving you His righteousness instead of His wrath because of His Son. It's indescribable is what it is. I said, it's indescribable. That's what it is. 
Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, the depths. Remember the statement again? How does the salvation that God provided show His unsearchable judgments? In this way, God the perfect Holy Father giving His perfect Holy Son to be brutally sacrificed so rebellious sinners could receive His perfect righteousness. That's what shows and exhibits beyond description the unsearchable judgments of God. Secondly, here's another unsearchable aspect of the salvation of God through His Son to us rebels. Number two, the damage to God's honor by mankind's sin does not compare to God's increased glory and our increased good through salvation. Let me say that again. I know that's kind of a complicated sentence. The damage that was done to the honor of God through the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and the sin of every other human throughout all history, the damage done to the honor of God because of all of those sins does not compare to God's increased glory and our increased good through the salvation that God has provided. Now let me explain that. I'll do it first of all by talking about God's magnificent mercy. You see, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. If God at that moment would have just swiftly carried out His judgment by pouring out His wrath upon Adam and Eve, or if He would have waited a few years or centuries to pour out His wrath upon the sin of mankind, here's what we would have known. We would have known that God is a God of glory and a God of greatness and a God of justice. But guess what we wouldn't have seen? We wouldn't have seen the mercy of God. It's through the fall of man and then the salvation that Jesus provided that we look and see the magnitude of the mercy of God so that we look down into the unfathomable depth of the mercy of God and cry out with Paul, oh, the depth of the mercy of God. It's indescribable. It causes Paul to erupt in an anthem of praise and what has happened down through the centuries in thousands and millions, even billions of hearts is that they have seen glimpses of the magnitude of the mercy of God so that their heart and their lips erupted in an anthem of praise. Oh, the depths of the mercies of God. God, your mercies are indescribable. You see, what has happened through the fall, that brutal 
action of Adam and Eve in sin and our subsequent brutal sins, God has taken all of that wickedness and in His sovereign power, He has used it actually to increase His glory by magnifying His mercy that we would have never seen without the fall and the salvation. Secondly, we can also see an increase of the glory of God by getting a clearer picture of God's awful justice, the severity of His judgments. You say, well, wait a minute, Brad. We would have seen the severity of the judgment of God if when Adam and Eve sinned, He would have just at that moment just poured out the vat of His wrath on them and wiped them out and eternally damned them for their sin. We would have seen the awful justice and the holiness of God in that. Yes, it's true. But consider this. We wouldn't have seen it like we see it now. Let me explain that. How much greater and clearer and more intense is the judgments of God shown to be when it is the Son of the eternal God, when it is God Himself hanging on the cross? What must God think of sin that would cause Him to take His eternal Holy Son in an indescribable agonizing ordeal of torture and nail Him to a Roman cross unto death. What must God's righteous judgments be like if He was willing to do even that? To display the depth and precision and severity of His justice. The perfections of the holiness of His justice. It's an infinitely greater picture of the awful justice of God that we see when we look at God on a cross than we see when we look at man justly condemned infinitely greater, more intense picture of the justice of God. In fact, you have to remember about three years back for this, but in Romans chapter 3, do you know what Paul teaches us? Verse 25, 26 He tells us this, that the main reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross was not for our sins. The central reason that Jesus died on the cross was to vindicate the justice of God. And here's how he explains that. You see, 
before Jesus was crucified, there had been a few thousand years at least of human history. And over those thousands of years of human history, there had been multiplied countless millions and billions of sins. And what it looked like was that God wasn't just. He's just letting all of this sin proliferate to a pandemic level. Where is the justice of God? It looked like God was not answering sin with His judgment. That He actually wasn't a just God who demanded a moral accounting of all in His universe. And then came the death of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did first and foremost on the cross, was that He proved once and for all, for all human history, that God the Father is a God of perfect justice who will every single time punish sin. Because what He did in His Son is that He placed the sins of humanity on His Son and then He poured out the full measure of His wrath against all of those sins upon His Son so that the Son absorbed the wrath of God for sin so that God could be seen to be a God of absolute, awful, perfect, penetrating, holy justice. We could have never seen that to that depth without the fall and the salvation that God has provided. Now the other category. What has this done not only for the greatness of God's glory, the increase of God's glory, what has it done for our greater good? What has it done for our greater good? Not only has glory been increased to the account of God, our greater good has infinitely increased. How has that been done? Let me just give you a few reasons. Number one, a greater righteousness. Go back again, pre-fall, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were created in perfect righteousness without sin. That was a perfect man righteousness. That was a great righteousness. Then they forfeited that by disobedience and rebellion and passed on that sinful nature to us so that we all sin. Then God provided salvation through the work of Jesus Christ so that when we put our faith in Jesus, what do we receive? Whose righteousness do we get? Oh, come on, church. Whose righteousness? We get God's. And I tell you that the righteousness of God is infinitely greater than any righteousness of man, even pre-fall, pre-sin. Infinitely greater is the actual righteousness of the eternal God than man could ever attain. And what we get because of salvation is not the remaking of our righteousness. It's 
fully destroyed. But what we get is the indestructible, eternal, all-conquering righteousness of God Himself. That's how the fall and the salvation that God provided resulted in our greater good. Here's another way, our greater home. Our greater home. Man, Adam and Eve, pre-fall, were created and placed within a garden of unmatched beauty, and it was a utopian existence. I mean, he was a stud and she was a babe. Weather was perfect. They were running around unencumbered by clothing. They had all of the needs to meet their physical sustenance. There was no pain. There was no sorrow. It was a place of perfection. And what would happen in the cool of the day is that God would come and He would walk with them in the cool of the day in the garden. But then came the fall. Then came the separation between man and God. And then for 2,000 years, God began to teach about His plan. And then Jesus came and the salvation was provided And the righteousness of God is given. And what then becomes our home? Do we get then to be restored back to the Garden of Eden? No, we go light years beyond that, folks. We have a home that is coming that so far transcends and outstrips and is infinitely greater than the Garden of Eden. We have the glory of heaven that is awaiting us. An infinitely greater existence. And we don't just get to have a walk in the evening in the cool of the day with God in heaven. We get to dwell for eternity directly in His presence, viewing His glory overcome moment by moment in increasing measure over the glory of God as waves and emanations of His glory move out like in liquid waves over us. This is how I picture this. We're, we're kneeling there or prostrate or standing in praise before the throne and with glorified eyes now viewing the glory of God and the greatness of who God is is rolling out in unending waves of greater intensity from Him. And every time a wave hits us, we are in shock and awe. Oh my goodness, God, I've never seen that depth of Your glory. And about the time we catch our breath, a bigger wave hits us and we're more amazed. And that happens in an endless way throughout all of eternity in increasing fashion. Listen, our home is going to be infinitely greater than Adam and Eve ever had in the garden. It's a greater good. It's a greater good. And it's, listen, it's a greater security. Think about this. It's a greater security. It's a greater security and safety than Adam and Eve had because what did Adam and Eve's security rest upon? It rested upon their obedience. 
created perfect. Here's the tree. Don't touch the tree. Don't eat of the tree. You stay away from that. Utopia forever. Intimacy with me. So what it was hinging upon and built upon was their ability to remain faithful to God. My righteousness that is now the righteousness of God because I put my faith in Jesus. Do you know that doesn't depend upon me? Hallelujah, praise God, that it does not. It depends and rests upon the unchanging nature of the greatness of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ Himself. It is His faithfulness that is unmovable and unchanging because He's the immutable, indefeatable God. And the very righteousness of Jesus is given to me. And he's the one that not only gives it, he's the one that maintains it. And so my security is an infinitely higher degree than Adam and Eve's ever was. And if you're in Christ, the same is true for you. Somebody say amen to that. Number four, a greater glory. Here's the fourth aspect of our greater good. It's a greater glory. What do I mean by that? I think Adam and Eve were probably some incredible specimens of humanity. But that ain't nothing to the transformed bodies and existence that we're going to have as followers of Jesus. Because when he returns the second time and we see him as he is, the Bible says that we're going to be transformed and become like him. We are going to have a share in the very glory of the Son of the living God. That's greater than Adam and Eve ever had. And then finally, Greater responsibility. See, Adam and Eve, God created this world for them, placed them in the garden there pre-fall, and made them co-regents over the earth and said, I'm giving you dominion. Dominion over the land and the creatures on it. Dominion over the sea and the fish in it. Dominion over the air and the birds in it. You are co-regents on this earth Then came the fall. Then came salvation. And here's the promise for followers of Jesus Christ. Not only are we going to reign on a new earth over land and sea and air, we're going to reign over the heavenly bodies as well. We're going to reign on earth and in heaven. We're going to reign with Christ for all eternity as joint heirs with Christ and be working out the designs and the purposes of God in our glorified state through all of eternity with a responsibility and a significance that infinitely increases over what Adam and Eve ever had. You see, here's the point. Here's the point. It is in 
the salvation that God has provided, that he has infinitely increased his glory and infinitely increased our good so that we can say, I hope with Paul, Holy Spirit, help us to see this truth so that we can say as we stand and we look down into the depth of the crevasse of the greatness of God, we can shout out, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are the judgments of God that he has determined in those judgments. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we get the righteousness of God and all of those blessings that come along with that forever, infinitely greater than it has ever been for humanity. Wow, wow, wow. And what I'm going to show you next week is the second half of the statement. Not only are the judgments of God unsearchable, But listen, the ways of God are inscrutable. So the judgments of God are related to the means by which he provides salvation. What are the ways of God? They're the ways that he appropriates that salvation to us. And what Paul says is, the ways that God comes to you and takes you from rebel and makes you a son or a daughter, that way or those ways they're inscrutable they're beyond your ability to figure out and explain he is a transcendent God and his ways of salvation and making those truths about the righteousness of God yours those ways are inscrutable all we can do is look and say oh God oh the depths of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge and stand in awe with Paul as an anthem of praise erupts from our hearts and breaks forth from our lips because of the greatness of God and his mercy. Please stand. Father, Oh, Lord God. How inadequate those feeble words have been of mine, but you're God and you can use the insignificant and the inadequate and make it sufficient. You can take human frailty and infuse it with Holy Spirit power and unction and transform it into an effectual word of God to a a human heart that takes them from death to life and takes them from one level of maturity to another. And I'm asking that you would do that now for your glory. Do that now for your glory. 
transform us, purify us with the clearer, higher, greater, deeper, awe-inspiring revelation of who you are. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.